Welcome to another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's regular podcast about significant developments in upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Mike Eckel, senior correspondent here in Prague, filling in for our regular host, Steve Gutterman. 1993, February, St. Petersburg. Russian authorities announced the seizure of over a metric ton, more than $100 million dollars, of cocaine. The cocaine was stashed in cans of corned beef that was shipped from Colombia and smuggled into Russia by road via Finland. The man whose agents seized the drugs was Viktor Cherkesov, known during Soviet times as a merciless KGB investigator. He was also a confidant of another KGB alumnus who, at the time, was St. Petersburg's deputy mayor and the man overseeing the city's foreign affairs. That's Vladimir Putin. Cherkesov, who headed the Russian drug agency, promised high-profile criminal trials into the coke bust. Nothing ever happened. Cherkesov's office halted the investigation seven months later, saying merely that the main suspects had fled the country. The cocaine itself disappeared from view. A new investigation by RFERL has uncovered multiple links between individuals implicated in the drug smuggling and the St. Petersburg mayor's office, where Putin worked. The findings echo past allegations that Putin himself was involved in the drug smuggling. It's all a very interesting asterisk in the political trajectory of Putin. And join me now to discuss the RFER investigation are two of its authors. That would be Andrei Soshnikov, an investigative correspondent with Current Time, and Karl Schreck, RFERL's enterprise editor. Здорово, мужики! Добро пожаловать! Mike. Hello, Mike. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Great. So, thanks for joining me, guys. Um, and again, the new investigation which you can find in Russian and in English on our websites, is in fact the first in a series of upcoming articles looking into the backstory of Putin's rise to power. If you want to understand what Putinism is, and you, you want to understand why, what Russia is today, why Russia is what it is today, the oligarchs, the Siloviki, capital flight, offshore banks, sanctions, all of it, you have to first take a look at St. Petersburg. Putin's hometown, and where he first made the transition into politics. Andrei, tell us, what is the main takeaway of this first chapter of the investigation? Uh, thank you. I'll say it again. It was February 1993, uh, quite a depressing time for Russia, to say at least. A ton of cocaine had been intercepted at the Russo-Finnish border, cargo from Colombia that was delivered by the ship, and uh, fast, the Finnish customs are noticed as quote-unquote cans of Colombian stew. And according to the head of the local KGB br branch, uh, who was uh, Putin's uh, one of the closest ally, Viktor Cherkesov, Russian car customs officers noticed that some cans did not have markings, and uh, upon opening them, they found the cocaine inside and the route had been tracked uh, by authorities in multiple countries including israel and israel is the only country that convicted some of the people uh, who were behind uh, this operation uh, they were citizens 
of uh, Israel, and uh, we've interviewed two people directly linked to this Israel investigation. Uh, this was the first interview of the actual person who was convicted for his role in this operation, and the first interview of a witness of this operation uh, that was questioned uh, by uh, Israel investigators. We've also found some uh, Israeli investigative uh, records, Russian police documents that was uh, that were never observed before. And uh, also you can check uh, in our story on our landing page uh, a very unique video and newspaper archives that uh, were never published before. So the Israeli convict, says that the paperwork uh, he carried uh, for the cocaine uh, consignment listed a recipient as the St. Petersburg government's public health watchdog, which was under control of the mayor's office. And Putin knew that cocaine will be delivered to St. Petersburg, and he knew that there was a big-scale operation uh, by Interpol to deliver it uh, to Europe and to catch criminals in Europe, but uh, something happened and Russian police decided to act and captured the cargo uh, itself. Our witness told that, us that uh, the Israeli businessmen uh, who were one of the main guys in this operation uh, had met with, first of all, Putin's boss, uh, Anatoly Sapchak, and another criminal had met with um, some mysterious person who was intermediate between Sapchak and criminals and worked for the mayor's office. And uh, we, he used pseudonym, for, and we didn't find this person, but anyway, it was noticing. And the only person who worked was who was arrested by the Russian police in Russia uh, with connection to this case uh, and spent uh, half a year in prison but uh, wasn't convicted is uh, nowadays a famous football famous football agent uh, who worked uh, with uh, several football or you can say soccer starts uh, he's not a criminal anymore but nobody knew these details uh, about his past. So these are our main uh, like points, uh, our main takeaway of this investigation. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I, I encourage everyone, if you haven't already, to check out uh, the investigations published in English and in Russian on our websites. And uh, a correction, I guess, in my introduction, I said Cherkesov was the head of the Russian Drug Control Agency. At the time, he later became the head of the Russian Drug Control Agency. Um, but he was still all along a confidant of the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, Vladimir Putin. Um, so, Carl, let's step back and look at the larger significance for a moment of Putin's time in St. Petersburg. Can we draw a direct line from his time as deputy mayor in Petersburg, where this case was one of several scandals to Russia's political situation today. Thanks, Mike. Um, well, I would say uh, one thing you really have to look at, um, and Andre is a native of St. Petersburg, so he probably knows this better than I, but um, I think uh, the 
complete dominance of organized crime, particularly in St. Petersburg at the time uh, when Putin launched his, uh, basically entered uh, into politics, um, you know, in, in, in the mayor's office. Um, I think that was really uh, formative for how he understood, um, you know, the relationship between um, between the state and and the electorate, uh, and um, I think it really uh, we see echoes of 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 that in the way Russia's run under uh, under Putin now, and you know I'm thinking specifically of um, you know cronyism patronage, um, the use of uh, law enforcement authorities for the enrichment of, uh, of insiders. I mean, if we just look at the, um, at the, the people who have become incredibly wealthy, uh, I mean, just the, the, the number of uh, Putin friends and insiders who have become enormously wealthy, um, uh, due in large part to connections to the, to the state cash cow is really remarkable. Um, and so I think uh, while it was a much smaller scale in St. Petersburg, um, you see uh, uh, a lot of the same motifs uh, in, uh, in Russia today and under, under, under Putin's reign. Uh, in this particular case, in the cocaine case, what's quite interesting as well is uh, I think this um, still this idea that um, the state doesn't owe any sort of a- accountability to the uh, to the electorate. Um, I mean, when uh, Putin's uh, confidant Viktor Cherkesov, uh, when his uh, team sees this metric ton of cocaine, uh, you know, in the beginning there were big there was a big press conference and promises there'd be a trial. Uh, they said they would use the cocaine for uh, medical purposes. It would be repurposed for medical use. Uh, and there were regular reports in the police, uh, in the, in the papers about the course of the investigation. Uh, and then after that, after these promises that this, this metric ton of cocaine would be uh, repurposed for medical use, it just completely dropped off the radar. Uh, and this was, you know, for me, probably the, the biggest red flag in the whole story. There was never any, uh, you know, we could never find a single press release or press conference saying, hey, look, we've used all this cocaine to uh, repurpose it for medical use and make all this money for the state. Uh, I mean, technically, that, can't, <laughs> that metric ton of cocaine was in the, in the hands of the, of the Russian taxpayer. Um, and what happened to it, we have uh, absolutely no idea. Yeah. So one chapter of Putin's time in St. Petersburg that has been under scrutiny, examined closely in the past and keeps coming up as a recurring theme is the question of, uh, uh, of food supplies, because back after the Soviet collapse, St. Petersburg faced food shortages and City Hall made various arrangements to try and fill the gap and you know, keep its residents from starving. And those arrangements included barter deals where these fly-by-night firms, these fly-by-night companies pocketed millions of dollars despite the fact that no food shipments were, in fact, delivered in exchange. Uh, Andre, as Carl said, you're a native of St. Petersburg. Talk to us a little bit about the whole food barter arrangement that was also noteworthy during Putin's time in St. Petersburg politics. I agree. First of all, I agree with Carl that uh, the main term that you can associate with Putin's uh, uh, regime is uh, impunity. Uh, He learned how to do uh, business and how to govern in 1990s. And he was never seriously questioned or 
um, convicted for any of the dark um, stories that he was involved with. And one of the stories was uh, investigated by uh, a Russian politician, Marina Salier, in 1992. I remember this time that you could uh, get food uh, or basic um, products, uh, but you had to pay for them with international currencies. If you needed uh, a cheap food, you had to stay in lines for a very long time. And uh, there was a danger of um, like a serious problems for the city because of the food shortages. So the mayor's office decided uh, to exchange some earth metals, oil products and other raw materials for over 100 million dollars uh, and used uh, barter contracts. Uh, in return, the city had to receive uh, some food, uh, but uh, the foodstuffs never materialized. And uh, Marina Salier, uh, who was a member of the local par parliament, uh, investigated these activities and had access to some documents uh, that had even uh, Putin's signature on them. And it's very easy to check that uh, the city was promised to receive uh, food from some companies and never received any of these very important uh, products that people really needed uh, at that time. And Putin was the person to pick these companies. Uh, there was no like a public procurement system with competition and due diligence. He just picked some suspicious companies, uh, some of them belonged to the friends of the mayor, some of them were belonged to the people close to criminal, some of them uh, were belonged to we don't know who. And the uh, city lost these very important uh, oil products and earth materials that uh, could be uh, exported uh, for a price of 100 million dollars never received any food mm -hmm. it happened it happened 30 years ago and still we can see the same pattern uh, every time with any corruption uh, scandal putin or his associates were involved in the same impunity repeats itself all the time uh, carl mentioned that uh there's a really great video that we published as part of this investigation. You can find it on our website that involves some really fascinating archival footage of the cocaine bust and really does a lot to illuminate this, this, this story. Um, and it, as I mentioned earlier, this, this first chapter, uh, it, it's a, this first investigation is, is, is part of an upcoming series of RFERL stories regarding corruption scandals and scams that swirled around Putin and his associates as he began his political ascent. Carl, talk to us what's coming down the road next. Yeah, we've got some really interesting stories uh, coming um, down the pipeline here. They will, um, they're mostly connected to um, Putin's um, external relations committee, a uh, very um, uh, influential committee that uh, Putin uh, headed uh, at the mayor's office. 
Um, you know, these are corruption stories that are very illustrative, illustrative, illustrative of uh, how how business was done with his committee um, uh, during that time. And um, so, I would. Uh, for anyone interested in these stories, please keep an eye on our website throughout the week and uh, and our Twitter feed, our social media feeds, um, because we've uh, uh, uncovered details and uh, stories that have seemingly long, long since been forgotten or never got the scrutiny they deserved uh, in the first place. And again, as you know, both Andre and Carl have, have, have referred to, uh, you can easily draw a direct line from the early days of Putin's political career in St. Petersburg to um, the, the, the state of leadership and the management style that we have seen, that we're seeing today in, in, in today's Russia. And, and I think there's a lot to be learned in, in looking at those historical uh, parallels. So um, I look forward to the next chapter of our investigation. So uh, we have a little bit of time remaining. So let's take a few questions from our listeners. Again, you can raise your hand in the, um, by hit the but, hitting the button in Twitter spaces. You can also send us a direct message or you can post your question as a reply to the tweet pinned in this Twitter space. We'll try to get through as many questions as we can. Let's see what we get for a question. If any. And there may not be any. Again, if you do have a question, you can raise your hand by hitting the button in the Twitter spaces. You can also send us a direct message or uh, simply post your question as a reply to the tweet pinned in this Twitter space. While we're waiting for a question to come in, I'll throw a, a question at, uh, at Carl. Where's Cherkisov now? He's not somebody you hear about uh, a lot these days. Do we know what happened to him? Yeah, so he has kind of uh, fallen off the... Um fallen off the map a bit in uh in recent years so um uh, as as we said he he served in the kgb together together with putin um was the top uh fsb official in saint petersburg for a long time and then when putin moved to the kremlin um he Cherkasov got increasingly um uh appointed to increasingly more powerful posts, including as Russia's uh, top counter narco narcotics official uh, in 2003. Um, there's an interesting backstory because in, uh, in uh, I think it was 2000, 2007 or 2008, um, there were uh, some, some really, there was some really nasty infighting between uh, security agencies and uh, Cherkesov ended up uh, publishing a letter uh, saying that the security services must not fall victim to this infighting and it was seen as a it was a really rare example of uh, security services insider um, going public with uh, airing basically their dirty laundry publicly um, he went on to serve in the Duma uh, in the in the Russian parliament for a few years but he um, since 2016 uh, he's been out of uh, parliament and there's um, 
Yeah, I don't really have any credible information as to where he is right now or exactly what he's doing. Interesting. Uh, we have one, one person who has a question, their hand raised. Go ahead, please. Hi, uh, Clinton DeVoe here, uh, contributor with uh, the Ottawa Hill Times, uh, as well as uh, City News Radio Network in Canada and Troy Media. Uh, so based off of the history of Vladimir Putin sort of leaving government military agencies or security agencies and then becoming, um, you know, the, uh, I don't want to say elected, but like it, becoming a part of the, the so-called representative government. Uh, do we have any sort of idea who, who may be a likely successor uh, to Putin based off of some of your understanding of these people that he worked with, uh, you know, at the city level as he eventually uh, became the person that we all know and recognize today. And uh, if we don't have any sort of idea, is that a failure on our part um, in the West uh when it comes to our intelligence gathering, because it, it seems like the more I hear about what's been happening over the last three or four months, that there's this fear that uh, a vacuum will be created uh, if and when uh, Putin is removed from office. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Hmm. Andre, you want to handle that one? A question of a successor to Putin and if and when he, he, he relinquishes power. Well, the successor of the Putin is the question of not the near future, I guess. I'm not a political scientist, but I don't see any evidence that uh, he's willing to uh, give uh, any power. And uh, he can uh, leave the presidential office or Kremlin, but he can still be a very influential person like it happened in Kazakhstan. And speaking about uh, the decision, uh, former Russian President Yeltsin's decision uh, to put uh, Putin on the power, knowing that uh, he had uh, some dirty business in his past. Well, uh, I saw how Westerners were very happy with this decision since he's not a communist and he's not, he was not a communist, he was not a nationalist and he never expressed any of, of these views. And that was enough uh, for the West uh, at that time. And uh, we've seen uh, different Putins uh, over these 20 years. And the first few years of Putin uh, in power, he used to be a reformer. And uh, he relied on some people with liberal and democratic views on how to build an economy. But unfortunately, it was a trap. Uh, because uh, while they were building a strong economy uh, in Russia, a very technocratic state, I would say that many services that were built are very useful and people admire it. But uh, all of this, all these budget systems and uh, uh, easy taxes and uh, all this infrastructure was used for PR of... Uh, uh, a liberal views of Russia inside the country and outside the countries and for the wars, uh, the war in uh, Chechnya, Second Chechen War, the war in Georgia, 
when uh, Russia annexed uh, the South Ossetia and the war in Ukraine, which we face right now, and we really need to tell about it because it's atroci- atrocities happens there. So now we can definitely see it was a mistake and that uh, the fact that Putin never expressed uh, any of his views that uh, he views that uh, he expresses now was not enough to be so glad that Yeltsin picked someone uh, insane as it's, it, it was um, understand it back then. It's a, it's a good reminder how uh, Putin was viewed at the very early days of his, of his, of his presidency. He was indeed embraced as this, uh, you know, stabilizing figure and uh, wholly welcomed in the West. And that was 20, 20, 22 years ago. Um, the next Russian presidential election is 2024. Um, all better off if there's going to be a presidential election. And uh, yeah, who's going to be the successor? There's no real clear indication at this stage in the game. Um, there is another question that's popped up from uh, a listener named Wendy, I believe. Wendy? Yes. <laughs> Hi, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm, oh, well, I just, you know, I always wanted to work in the State Department, and when uh, Trump took over and he just completely gutted the State Department, it was like a heart, like a knife in my heart, and and then he started making some moves on Radio Free Europe, and that was another thing I thought he was doing for Putin, and I just, ah, and so he hasn't been able to reverse the post office problem yet, and I'm just wondering if Biden's been able to... Um, kind of reverse whatever damage happened to Radio Free Europe? Uh, that is a uh, question that I'm going to have to punt. <laughs> this <laughs> podcast is about Russia and Putin and uh, this new investigation uh, that we've published here. Uh, that's not to say, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty to be said. It's all positive, I would say. But uh, I'm going to put that question to the side since, uh, and keep the discussion more on topic. Um, I see another hand, though I can't tell who the listener is. One second. It's our uh, listener, Clinton, who I believe asked a question previously. Uh, go ahead, Clinton. Yeah, hi. Thanks a lot. Uh, Clinton DeVoe here again. Uh, so follow-up question to my previous one. Uh, is there any sort of um, understanding uh, at the municipal level in Russia, um, not necessarily someone who has uh, spoken out against Putin, but is there anyone at the municipal level that appears to uh, have consolidated support from um, you know, people within their respective cities or towns within Russia that could then use that as a way, as leverage, if you will, uh, to sort of follow the path that Putin did, um, you know, 25, like 30, 30 years ago, that sort of thing. That's a good question. I have a couple of thoughts that come to mind, but I'm going to kick it to Carl and Andre, see which one of you uh, might have a thought about regional leaders who perhaps have a regional base, an electoral base that could potentially be used to, to, to build a, a larger political movement. Carl Andre, which one of you wants to handle that? 
I can I can go first. Um, uh, I would say that um, you know from the beginning of Putin's uh, reign, um, they've been uh, he's been extremely wary of um, of regional leaders uh, with let's say too much uh, sway and power in their own regions. Um, and, uh, you know, that one of his first tasks was to basically rein in um, the regions that were kind of off doing their own thing. Um, and, you know, you've seen appointments of governors in recent years where um, people who aren't from the region at all are appointed to, to you know, lead, lead various regions with which they don't really have much connection at all. Um, so uh, to, to basically the, the short answer is I don't see anyone um, with a type of profile that you could easily say, yes, this person is prepared to step right in. And part of that is, is uh, I would say, Putin's own doing, um, and which is extremely problematic, is he has created a system that essentially only he is um, capable of managing. Um, and at some point, uh, his rule will end. Um, and what happens after that um, is... A big a big question i would say the the one exception with this is chechnya um where ramzan kadyrov has basically uh, been handed the region and told to union that he can run it however he wishes uh even if it's not in compliance with uh with russian federal laws uh but this is just part of a bargain uh to essentially keep chechnya quiet um and in exchange for you know kadyrov's uh, basic autonomy there of course, thank sir. you for uh, thank you for answering my question. I appreciate that. Of course, there are several examples of of, of actual bodyguards, uh, officers with the Federal Protective Service, who have been appointed governors by the Kremlin, and then there's the case of uh, the Khabarovsk governor, Sergei Furgal, who, who had his wings clipped in a dramatic fashion um, a, a couple years back by the Kremlin. Um, any f other questions we can take in the remaining time that we have? It doesn't look like it. So with that, I'm going to call it a day and say thank you both to Andre and Carl for joining us both. And again, I remind people, please go check out the investigation in Russian and English on our websites um, and be on the lookout for the next uh, installment of our, uh, of our investigation into the political corruption scandals and scams that, um, uh, that characterized Putin's early years in St. Petersburg. Again, this conversation will also be published, uh, republished as a podcast. You can find it on our website. You can also subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and find many of RFERL's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other similar places. I'm Mike Eckel. Thanks for listening.